Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Back with us from her sickbed, media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Listen to that. You've got that husky, you've got that husky, cold <laughs> flu voice. If I say anything <clears throat> ridiculous, I'm blaming the like fever, Tallulah so. Bankhead. It's like uh, <laughs> there's I, I'm too young to have made a Tallulah Bankhead reference, by the way. I'll take um, it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, elections end and then interesting things happen when elections end. Right. We get uh, we get flurries of activities in periods after. You don't want to change any of the status quo because you don't know what's going to happen. We have uh, this uh, effort to, to enshrine a gay marriage in federal law that just passed the Senate and will presumably be passed by the House and signed by the president nationally. And then in New York City, uh, Mayor Eric Adams, uh, 10 months or almost 11 months into his mayoralty, has finally announced a plan to deal with the spiraling um, mentally ill homeless problem, homeless problem in the city uh, by uh, with a major push to remove people, as the New York Times puts it, with severe untreated mental illness from the city streets and subways, which involves involuntary hospitalizations of people who are a danger to themselves. Um, now, of course, here's what's interesting about this. This power has always been, it's sort of like, you know, I don't want to sound like Glinda the Good Witch of the North, wherever the hell she's from, but this power has always been in Eric Adams' hands. New York state law permits involuntary hospitalizations of people who are a risk to themselves and always has. It is that um, the liberal uh, leftist um, social justice consensus for reasons that elude me and maybe we can get into this morally or spiritually has been that uh we should not be doing that and we 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 uh what we have here is a housing crisis not a mental health crisis and people who live on the streets or live in the subways or do whatever they're doing are doing so for economic privation reasons and not because they uh not because there's something uh their care has gone awry um but so he has now triggered this and he is uh he is ending the policy that he started at the beginning of his mayoralty uh, this year of uh turning cops into social workers and trying to figure out you know how to go up to people in a subway station if you're a police officer and give them an information on how to find a shelter or get mental health care <clears throat> or something like that it's you know the point here is if you could have done it unilaterally could have done it in February and, you know, uh, dozens of people would be alive, including many small children who were uh, being, who were killed um, or injured. And, uh, and uh, many sick people would have been, uh, you know, given uh, more appropriate places to be treated, but better late than never. Noah, what's your, where do you come out? Well, yeah, I mean, we've, I can't tell you how long we've been talking about the need to reinstate involuntary uh, commitment of people who are a danger to themselves and others. And the failure to do that has contributed mightily to the state of decay in urban America. There's something of a uh, of a backlash, but it's it's so half hearted. Um, it's it's rote and mechanical. And the New York Times has a pretty good. Uh, effort to do that on this part. It's it's worth reading this piece by uh, Sarah Maslin Near, and the the copy is peppered with color that creates the uh, the impression that the reporter, when she was dispatched to these uh, homeless encampments in order to get some reactions to this event, felt endangered. Talks about how there are people. You know, wandering around her, gesticulating wildly that they're sitting in piles of broken bottles, um, that uh, she's she feels herself surrounded by people who speak to themselves, who rock quietly. Now, you don't get and she doesn't put herself in the story, obviously, but that creates an atmosphere of apprehension. And there's sort of this, again, mechanical attempt to drum up some 
hostility to this effort among people who have psychiatric disorders and are living on the streets. Um, and it's usually it's on the part of the reporter, not really on the part of the homeless people. For example, quote, were she to spiral of one individual who requires medication and is a street person to control her schizophrenia? Were she to spiral, Mr. Mrs. Brown said she feared the city's new marching orders could make her a black woman, a police target. Now, she says, I'm scared of that. But she doesn't really say that because she also goes on to say that eh, psych wards aren't so bad. And every time I've been in police custody, a total of three times recently, she's been treated pretty well. There is sort of a apprehension about what could be the effect of giving police too much power among these individual homeless people. But just about every person quoted here describes a state of incarceration out, outside. They are a prison. In their, they're imprisoned in their own minds and they need help and they're well, kind of reaching out for help. I mean, even this attempt to drum up some really academic, uh, progressive um, logic against involuntary commitment fails at its own charge when it goes to talk to the people who would benefit from that condition. Well, in that and a lot of those same people, I know that the focus on the left is always, you know, oh, they're unhoused. They're, they need they need services. If you just put them in good housing and give them an opportunity to find a job, all these problems will resolve. Well, of course, it's not just about involuntary commitment. A lot of these people are actually self-medicating with illegal substances because they're off their prescribed medication. So if you involuntarily commit them, you're also committing to involuntarily medicating them in some cases, particularly with people who have kind of violent forms of or more aggressive behaviors result of schizophrenia and some other, you know, sort of mental health conditions. And the, uh, I mean, it's very, very difficult to to keep these people in a safe situation, even if they're committed for a time and put back on their meds. I mean, we had a, we've had a couple of people in my own neighborhood where the entire community came around and like, you know, informed social services, tried to get them help. There was a lot of reaching out. They were living in a park and they weren't even particularly violent until at one point, one of the, one of the people living in the park for whatever reason became more unstable and like tried to attack a child. And that's what finally brought the cops. But this was after two years of some very disconcerting behavior that made a lot of people, particularly parents of young children who use the park, very concerned. And so I think good for Adams for doing this. I, I'm with you, Johnny, should have done it a lot sooner. But this has to happen at a broader scale and with an explanation for why this is actually about, it's not a civil liberties question in the sense that I think the left wants to make it, because people who live in a neighborhood and are not mentally ill and are not homeless also have civil liberties. And they're not able to walk around their neighborhoods without fear of being attacked by someone whose civil liberties are somehow being prioritized in, in these cities. That's that's what I was thinking. I mean, there is a serious philosophical question about what you can or should compel uh, mentally ill people to do, because they are often, they often do not act in their best in their own self-interest and what then are you obligated to do if you are a social worker or if you are if you work for the state i mean they know the the, the uh, psychotics famously don't take their medication um uh everyone hates homeless shelters uh uh even if you know you have no matter how desperately you need them I, this reminds me of in, when when ed koch during a, a cold snap decided that he was going to uh take the homeless off the off the sidewalks uh yeah, that would to, have been to, the 1980s yeah right yeah yeah to, to to protect them from themselves that is a i mean it's it's kind of crazy to think that you you wouldn't do that and and you'd sort of let them die on the sidewalk but but either way that that is a serious philosophical discussion to be had over something like this like over something like that i think this is different because as christine says this is about public safety um but and, but and it that's is not that's, it is not about public safety. That's what's interesting about this policy. This policy has not been put in place in, in, in explicit terms for public safety reasons. The only reason that you can do this is because the person is a risk to them, to him or herself. It is not that they pose a risk to the public at large. That is a sec. That is not what is contained in this po policy. And Adams is very careful to say that because. The state allows involuntary, involuntary commitment for people who are a danger to themselves, not, as far as I can tell from what I'm reading, a danger to others, which is a criminal matter instantly. In other words, if you threaten 
or threaten to do or do harm. But to you have person. to wait until the harm is caused. Right. And that's the you cannot say this well, person's been that, making so threats for six months. That's why this is only right. Hey, right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no. But but I mean, so my attitude is like kind of obscene when it comes to that. Then that's fine. Oh, then, then 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 just fudge it. You know, like, right. OK, so 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 it's well, so this it's not is a actually fudge. about public right. safety, but yeah. it kind of is. And that's fine with me. Right. But it's a fudging by by right. definition because he wouldn't be he's not doing it to protect them from themselves, though we should morally and spiritually and all that. He is doing it for public safety reasons, but he can't say he's doing it for public safety reasons or the lit or the bar, you know, the sort of the homeless bar will use the disingenuousness as a weapon against the city to say that the policy was put in place not for the good of the suffering mentally ill person, but for you know, but for other reasons that are not that have not been sort of promulgated in law. The issue that we have here, therefore, is why isn't this something that is promulgated in law? Now you could say it is by definition, right? Because you can't no one can criminally can can do crime against another person in law, right? So the law exists for precisely this reason, but as but as Christine says and said, you can't arrest someone for pre-crime. Effectively here, what we're doing is saying that a that a mentally ill person on the streets who is who is who is at risk to themselves is almost prima facie a risk to other people um in other words they're not just at risk of you know dying by suicide they are at risk of harming others as they harm themselves and therefore an involuntary commitment of them has the ancillary benefit of 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 protecting public safety they also but drug treatment also has to be part of that equation i think because that's a lot of them become a day if you're a if you're a paranoid schizophrenic off his meds who's doing all kinds of street drugs you got to get clean in order to to understand whether the 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 very powerful uh, antipsychotics are going to work once prescribed so that i mean i you i think a lot of the people who become you know, violent are, they're certainly under, many of them are mentally ill, but they're also on top of that under the influence of drugs that, that make, that exacerbate those tendencies too. So there's just, it's not just, oh, they don't have housing. And if we just gave them apartments, they would be fine. No, they need drug treatment. They need all, they need all kinds of support beyond just taking them off the street. But, you know, this is where, <clears throat> let us say a classically conservative, pessimistic view, let's say pessimistic view of human nature <clears throat> or of the ordering of human societies comes in because the central problem here is that this is an intractable tragedy. It is an intractable tragedy. We're talking about how schizophrenics are non-compliant with their medications or like a lot of psychotics are not. Mo many, if not most people, according to doctors, are non-compliant with their medications. Everybody doesn't do it right or like forgets to take things and stuff like that. But, you know, if you forget to take your i don't know your statin one day you can take it the next day it's fine if you forget to take your thorazine one day the voices will start coming back that say you should maybe hit that person over the head with a hammer like you don't it, it's not that simple and so the only way to achieve and ensure compliance is relatively permanent hospitalization or group living or something like that where the feeding of medication to patients is the key element of treatment every day. And there are people there 24 hours a day to deal with that. And of course, if we have a problem that is millions that involves several million people in the United States, we do not have the resources. Well, that and that necessary. that's where that's where the history of state institutions and involuntary involuntary commitment to state institutions is. We have some really nasty chapters of American history where the stuff that went on in state institutions for centuries was abusive and violated right. civil liberties and civil rights all over the place. But we know that history and having hopefully learned from it, I think we've the, the extreme that's been in place now, which is like just empty the institutions put and these people end up on the streets. There has to be some way in the 21st century for us to figure out a solution to this problem that avoids the the violative aspects of, of you know, historically state run institutions. 
but that gives help to people. It is it, their civil liberties are they're not able to be be you know fully flourishing human beings living on the street addicted to drugs and off their meds either. So weighing that is important. But the state does. I mean, I. I'm a conservative. I tend to not, I don't think the state always has the right answer. In most cases, it doesn't. But we do. There are not enough hospital beds right now right. for the mentally ill. So even if Adams gets every single person off the street, where is he going to put them? And this is well, true again in every city. But I want to so get to the, the even the deeper pessimism here that I wanted to express about societies dealing with this, this problem, which is you say they need drug treatment. Drug treatment is an extremely ineffective remedy like you know if you look at whatever numbers people have been able to compile over the last 60 years of drug treatment drug treatment works in maybe a quarter of cases something like that so you try it but if it doesn't work it doesn't work it's le it's likely not to work even with people who are really willing to see it work uh it's more likely that it's like m far more likely that people who are drug addicts get bored weirdly as they age get bored with being drug addicts and kind of stop being drug addicts i mean it's a it's a strange feature of things similarly you get we live in a society in which there was a decision made to say that that the mentally ill were maybe we're not mentally ill but we're unhoused and all of that why did that happen well there was a philosophical effort to recategorize mental illness in the 1960s both from the left and from the right rd lang a famous british psychiatrist and psychoanalyst said that basically mental illness being mentally ill in the in the in the modern capitalist world was a rational response to the insanity of middle class life and and so uh you could not categorize people who were mentally ill as being mentally ill per se because they were they were responding appropriately to you know living under the shadow of the nuclear bomb and consumerism and this and that that was sort of the left-wing assault saying that these this was a critique of modern life that these people were expressing in their madness and then you had libertarians on the right thomas jage was the main figure in this regard who basically said the state had no right to be coercive with the mentally ill they were doing nothing wrong they were citizens like anybody else the state was de would deprive them of liberty and freedom and that this was a, a wrong in and of itself particularly since treatment was so ineffectual and so you had this kind of pincer move and then when homelessness became an issue and homelessness was from the very outset of uh, as an issue was largely a mental health problem but the idea was, ah, you see, our capitalist system can't house the because housing is too expensive. And and the state, the federal government had basically stopped building public housing. It had it had turned this into a block grant system at the and so this was an attack on, you know, Reagan and 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 you know uh, federalism and all of that. And so the idea was everybody doing this is just doing it because the society is so unequal and so unfair that they have to live on the streets with their children because they can't afford to live any other way. And then we started the shelter system. So not to get like too monologuish here, but the New York City shelter system, there is a consent decree in New York that says there is no such thing as a full shelter. Anyone who wishes to get shelter in New York City, the largest city in the country, can get shelter, which means that the shelters can't close, which means that they are overcrowded, and people often sleep on office floors and things like that. And they are nests of violence, criminality, and viciousness such that a mentally ill person who might be raped in a shelter might be better off sleeping on a grate because the shelters are the ninth circle of hell. And they're the ninth circle of hell because of the of this consent decree that was you know, put in place by talk about the lunatics getting uh, control of the asylum. A, a a member of the Legal Aid Society in New York named Stephen Banks was the key litigant against the city for 25, 30 years in creating this, helping to create the shelter system, these rights for the homeless that have been nothing but problematic for the homeless and or unhoused or whatever you want to call them. And then in 2016, Bill de Blasio made him the commissioner of homeless services in New York City so that he could 
destroy from in, inside what he had destroyed from outside. That's what's very interesting that you don't have that kind of reaction in this times piece that I was talking about before that's attempting to establish this reaction. It doesn't quote any homeless person who's had an experience with the system saying the system is terrible. In fact, they're actually rather deferential to the, the, the care that they receive in the system when compared to their present conditions on the streets. What it attempts to establish is the idea that because homeless people would have increased interactions with police, as though homeless people don't have interactions with police multiple times per day every day that it would uh, result in more violent outcomes especially when it with regard to black people which are disproportionately homeless uh that's the narrative that's attempted to be established and again it's just very tired i mean you're making at least a, a novel argument in part because it hasn't been made in 30 years um but this is you know that's not the argument that they're making either the homeless or the progressives who would under who would who have increasingly in our own age defined uh, mental illness and uh, uh, failures to cope with the world as it is uh, as some sort of a rational response to empirical conditions. So we have here a crisis in definitions because what I'm saying is there is no solution. There's no solution to an adult's mentally ill. There are more solutions than there used to be because there are drugs that can quiet or help manage somebody who whose brain is, you know, a, attacking him or her uh, or, you know, creating this sort of like life inside a life and imprisoned in their own bodies and all of that. And there's more treatment than there, than there used to be, far more treatment than there used to be. But... No society has ever figured out how to deal with this. There are tragedies in the world. This is a this is one of the tragedies. The the main thing, however, is that we're supposed to be, a, if if liberalism and progressivism are fundamentally compassionate, there has a been a staggering lack of compassion about this and a kind of society wide conspiracy to. Because it's not fun to spend money building mental hospitals, right? Who, what fun is that? You don't get to do anything fun. You don't get to have a nice ribbon cutting and say, I've, you know, really beautified this neighborhood. Like, this is one of the, you could say this should be one of the fundamental duties of our society is to help people in this condition who cannot help themselves. That is like gut welfare state <clears throat> policy. Um. But uh, but it's in no one's political interest to advocate for this. Well, and if you're a, if you're a Democrat, there are a lot of left leaning, very well funded groups that 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 deal with homelessness and drug addiction and all kinds of stuff who have very ideologically sharp borders. So there, I mean, they're already these, some of these groups are already calling Adams, you know, oh, he's he's, you know, a sadist. He just wants he's just hates homeless people. He wants to sweep them up and raise. I mean, the kind of hyperbole that they use in their fundraising appeals. So people continue to give them money is is um, another thing they have to look out for. I mean, here in D.C., I will tell you, whenever Joe Biden wants to give a public address at any in any area of D.C., which unfortunately now is a lot of them that is, has a homeless tent encampment. The federal government, if it owns that owns that property, will get those people out of there in the dark of night very quickly. And you don't hear a peep from the advocates about it. Right. It's like, oh, OK, yeah. So he's got to have his photo off. But if you have a someone who leans a little conservative saying this homelessness is a threat to people's personal safety. You know, if you come off a train, you shouldn't be worried about being shoved down the escalator. That's fascist. So there there's a lot of there are a lot of advocates, ideologically motivated advocacy groups who are part of this equation who do not want to see even a well-functioning state-run mental institution that can involuntarily commit involuntarily commit people who need it even for a short time. They don't want to see that. That undermines their business model, as it were. Right. I mean, I think we also part of this and part of what's going on in New York and other places is liberal axioms or progressive ideas that have fueled you know a generation of social justice warriors and workers and all of that are now coming smack dab not only into you know into into reality or having to you know hit a wall of reality about what the 
what the consequences of their beliefs are and what they then do is say well true you know true homelessness policy has never been tried um but also the common sense of the ordinary person who says this is not what my neighborhood should look like and what's more in in new york at least 15 years ago this is not 10 years ago this is not what my neighborhood looked like now it looks like it so we know there was a time when it didn't look like this and now it does so there was a delta there's a change why did that happen have the laws changed have the have the you know the precepts of our society changed are people are these people poorer is the housing crisis worse? Blah, da, 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 da. No. So something has happened. Decisions have been made that are largely enforcement or non-enforcement decisions. And politicians are going to reckon with this. I mean, I go, go back to what happened here in New York with Kathy Hochul and the governor's race. She didn't lose, but she almost lost, where four years earlier her predecessor had won by 23 and the issue was crime and cr home this homeless stuff where this are public displays of lawlessness and criminality represented by homelessness had a gigantic political impact on the state and, and had a gigantic political impact in the city because voter numbers were depressed wildly depressed in the city like there was very the democratic turnout cratered in the city because voters were you know maybe maybe they voters are you know weren't motivated to go to the polls to vote on how things were because they were they weren't in great shape spiritually so and eric adams is looking ahead to running in 2025 and you know he gotta do something because he well, will not be reelected. but he's done a lot of some things is the issue, you know, like there's there's been a lot of initiatives and announcements about more police and different police and flooding the subways up and and the crime is still terrible, you know, so it's not there's not this like sort of big conceptual global move that that mm -hmm. he needs to, to take here. But he's inconstant and foolish. He's not a serious right. person. He's an embarrassment. All of that can be true. And uh, he can also have to put policies in place that will save him politically. And 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 it's again, common sense tells you what those policies are. And does it mean that he has to get crosswise of 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 the Democratic Party's liberal and progressive sort of uh, you know thought class? He is, but yeah, you but know without, he's caught but, between a rock and a hard place there. But that's where the leadership. That's why his lack of leadership is actually pretty stunning. And Abe's right. You can you can have things like these little piecemeal policies here and there, but the people who actually on the ground have to enforce it, namely the cops in this case, how if they don't think they're going to have the backing of their mayor, if they go around and sweep up a bunch of aggressive guys shoving people off of subway platforms, they're less likely to actually intervene and, and enact those policies. They have to be the people on the front lines. And they're, if they're if if they have this fickle mayor who's like, oh, I want to solve the problem piecemeal, they actually need a mayor who will stand up and be like, you know what? Here's the big problem. Here's a here are 10 solutions that we're going to implement all at once to try to to solve it. That's leadership. And you take the knocks, whether it works or not. He's not doing that. But let's 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 broaden this out. Besides New York, right? There was a there was a very close mayor's race in Los Angeles. So the the conventional Democrat won against the you know billionaire running on crime, who you know effectively is a Republican who ran as a Democrat to try to you know nonpartisan race. But Rick Caruso almost won. Uh, Karen Bass won. Does she get the memo? Like it, it, she didn't win. She won. As we constantly say, and tropically, she won because it was the hump was too hard for Rick Caruso to get over to win. But did he did he get forty seven or something like that percent of the vote running solely on crime and homelessness? He did. It, does that mean that she needs to look at that and say, "I got half the city that is consumed with fear and anxiety about this issue and i better respond to them she does will she i don't know that's one test case san francisco remains another test case where london breed the mayor has been you know clearly trying to figure out some way 
to deal with her problems. And then we have, you know, Portland and other places and, and we'll see, like, you know, uh, it can't go on like this. The Washington Post story about the homicide rates surges. Again, we're now eliding criminal justice and, and mental health stuff. But you know that Washington Post story yesterday about the surge in 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 the cities and 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 what what life is like on the ground for people. The political system has to be responsive to this. This you know uh, uh, blue state model that that we've heard you know Walter Russell Mead start talking about fifteen years ago um, is cracking at the seams. It's just that it's not clear how it how it breaks open but you know this isn't going to go on in perpetuity it really isn't like the fissures are everywhere it's just a question of whether the democratic party's coalition can start uh broadening or or morphing a little bit to have people in it who are going to say i don't want like adams did in 2021 running for running for mayor like uh you know we got to solve this problem now, he came in, he doesn't have a solution. He doesn't want to solve anything. He just wants to sit in his restaurant and have people come and kiss his ring because he's a he's a foolish idiot. But and, you know, and 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 spiritually corrupt, if not personally corrupt, though, he's probably personally corrupt. But, you know, a, ref a real reformer. Is there going to be a reformist mood in the party in the cities? There 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 has to be. This can't go on. It just doesn't it doesn't make rational sense because the. Among other things, these policies aren't delivering even for, except for like nonprofit social service bureaucracies that get money out of, you know, out of this, but they would still get money out of it if they just, you know, shifted 20 degrees in a different direction. I don't know. Let's take a break and hear from our first sponsor. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in, just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute. There's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Do we want to talk about the same-sex marriage vote in the Senate and the coming signing of a federal law protecting gay marriage? Only... I guess we are, because I said, do we want to? So well, I guess now we have to. <clears throat> only in well so we got a uh, vote in the senate yesterday uh the, the same-sex marriage bill passed with 61 votes um a lot of republicans joined democrats to do that there was some back and forth over amendments for religious liberty some very parliament parliamentary details but uh it got it passed and it passed uh overwhelmingly uh with a well, super majority overwhelmingly. vote, well, super majority vote is overwhelmingly in my view yeah, but it's still it wasn't it wasn't like 80 to 20. It was 61 to 39 or something like that. Right. Yeah. Well, we could quibble. But in my view, a supermajority vote is how this is all supposed to work. This is how, right. how this is supposed to work. Um, And it all is in thanks to Dobbs, the majority uh, opinion in Dobbs and its concurrences lit a fire under Democrats who all of a sudden recognized that all these rights that had been pulled from constitutional penumbras were not necessarily 
founded on uh, on solid ground and they needed to be shorn up with legislation. And that's what they did in this case. So it, good yeah. for them. So if and you're reflects, happy about this, if you're happy about this, thank a conservative justice. It also reflects uh, America largely. I mean, Americans are actually a little more positive than the than the split and the vote in the Senate. But, you know, around 70 percent of Americans now support gay marriage. So this is reflective of a broader consensus, even as there are people who, and I know some of them personally, who are still very much opposed on religious grounds to the idea of gay marriage. Most Americans aren't. This re- this is reflective of a population that has embraced this as something that going forward, the country should respect. Regardless, even if you think that the, the Congress, which is controlled by a different ideological tribe than which is in control of, of the Supreme Court, only interpreted this ruling and its concurrences to merely suggest that it should get off its butt and do its job. That's exactly how this is all supposed to work. That is good. That is the signals that the founders intended everybody to send and receive and act on from these competing branches. So bully for us. I will say that um, you're playing with fire a little bit in this respect. The vote indicates, as Christine and you both say, a kind of national consensus on the legitimacy of gay marriage, not just the legality of it, but the legitimacy of it as being enshrined by law. But um, uh, there is a growing population of people who say that America is unmoored from all of its tradition all western tradition and is unmooring itself and is floating off free without direction without connection to you know sort of like history and uh absolute morality and all of that and uh this is just going to hasten that sense of disconnection from america and a kind of conservative moral anti-americanism that has always been a has been a quiet feature of the right for 150 years you know capitalism is destructive of you know good social structures the agrarian tradition the stuff like that um but we now see it intellectually and on all sides and we have you know we will have people who say you know this could never have happened uh, you know, we're just we've we we we've lost our we've lost our moral compass. And again, as with a lot of these things, um, the consequences of that are hard. You can't game them out, but okay. they're not. I'm they're sure. Not... I mean, you can you can create any any number of dangerous hypotheticals. What unfortunately that has no bearing on this process, which is at long last quite constitutional. And you're you're yeah. you're talking about a rear guard that will. That runs the risk of adopting far more radical resolutions to this issue than the jurisprudence and legislation has at long last settled because those tools are out of their hands. If they're going to talk themselves into extra constitutional actions, they're going to talk themselves into it. No, no, you're I'm talking about a larger question about how people in America think about America. I'm not talking about what the practical response is going to be to laws that people don't like. I'm talking about a sense of disconnection from the country, its future, you know, what we, the, the, the sense that it's a, a good place that is good, you know, that like, that like provides a good life for people and is a, you know, is, is free and, but ordered Liberty, whatever, however you want to put it. I'm not, I'm talking much more vaguely and philosophically than I am that, you know, people are going to, you know, shoot up a, you know, a, a licensing, you know, a marriage license, you know, place in a county somewhere that issues a gay marriage certificate. I'm sometimes when you win socially, uh, you know, you shouldn't. This is the masterpiece cake shop mistake and stuff like that. I was going to bring that up. You don't want to rub. Yeah. You don't want to rub people's nose in there in the in the destruction of the things that they hold dear. Well, and there's a paradox here, right? Because uh, as many conservatives at the time when when gay marriage first became a political issue argued, and I think this is correct, marriage is ultimately a conservative institution. It is a civilizing institution, particularly for men. And it is it is something that I think uh, the advocates for gay marriage who were successful 
their appeal was heard because what they said is we want to be part of this conservative civilizing institution. You, you're, you're keeping us out of something that's actually uh, civilizing for all good for all Americans if we if we have these traditions and, and they're expanded to include us. And I think that was very persuasive, along with obviously, you know, sort of cultural shifts that were already underway. But there is there's a lot of contempt for institutions on the left these days. And those particularly include marriage and family. And so I worry that, you know, that that the sort of reaction might also happen on their extreme fringe, too, where it's it's like, okay, well, so gay marriage is now legal. Now polyamory, polyamorous unions should be legalized. Children should be allowed to choose to marry someone like it could go. It it could go more wild. (laughs) Oh, but we've already seen it. I mean, it's not it's not just rubbing the victories in their face. It's when you get all this um, activist energy behind something and you win. What do you do with these with this money, with these with these forces, with this network, um, with this whole sort of subculture that you've got going now, this activist subculture you got going? We saw what they did when 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 gay marriage turned change when the country changed overnight uh, uh, during the Obama years, when Joe Biden came out and said, uh, the boss is going to, is going to tell you something that he's, that he's changed his mind on this. And every, the whole country kind of fell in line behind it. Fine. Great. Whatever. Um, there was this sort of sense of, okay, okay, wow. We were, the door just, the door just, the door just blew open without, with with scarcely a push here. Um, where do we go next? And that is when, the, the entire trans thing exploded. Um, you have to do you. There's always what is the next frontier? I just think we're all con- talking past each other because I find none of this to be particularly d- disheartening because all the same tools are available to all the players in this game. And we are at long last playing on the same field. Windsor didn't happen overnight. Windsor happened over several years before it reached the Supreme Court. A burger fell didn't happen overnight. It happened as a result of Windsor. And several years later after that, the jurisprudence that established the invalidity of recip- of non-reciprocal protections for marriage in due process and uh, equal the popular, protection clauses in the 14th Amendment. These are the tools that are available to you as well as them. The and popular, if you, you don't want to play the game, play the game. The popular opinion have changed overnight. It changed absolutely yeah, overnight. All of that, the popular opinion preceded the court's liberation uh let's say i mean you know the supreme court as mr dooley said follows the election returns or follows the polling public mood shifted and the court followed the public mood the shift in the public mood my worry here i mean the thing the problem with um no with with your interpretation of this like you know that you can use the same tools is that um this is about custom uh and laws were written to kind of enforce custom over time about things like marriage but there nobody was under any illusions until the 1990s that marriage was an institution between a man and a woman that's what it was it was like ungrammatical to refer to gay marriage. It was like an oxymoron. Marriage was a man and a woman in a, in, in some kind of a union, either a sacrament or a civil union or something recognized by law. We changed the definition of it, which had really never happened before um, over, over time and reinforcing custom. So this is now a new custom. It's not so simple to just say, okay, well, you know, law, we, you you can use the same law that everybody else Well, can. you could say the same about all the jurisprudence that has arisen around 14. 14th Amendment hasn't been, has been reinterpreted to include a variety of rights over the course of its entire history. We're still finding new rights in 14, and always have. And you can go back 50 years and say, well, we have a long but, tradition in this country of poll taxes. But, but, it, you're, but you're, no, but... You're being too literal minded. You're being too literal or legally minded minded. here. Um, And I I submit you're being too philosophical. This is the grave grave weakness of the custom problem, which is in the end, what the culture recognized without enforcing it was that for a great many people, marriage is a sacrament. 
In other words, it's a it's a it's a it's a covenant between people and God. It's a sacrament. Uh, you know, the largest religious denomination in the country, the Catholic Church, had very strict rules about what marriage was, how it was what what made it moral or what made it unsinning, all of that. And it was it was, as I say, the largest denomination in the country, even though the country was often very hostile to Catholics and all of that. And law kind of, you know, sort of followed along in its wake because that's what law does with social custom. When that gets lifted, you can't reimpose it because you're talking about something that isn't, that shouldn't be in American law, right? Which is you don't do things to make it easier for sacramental marriage to be the law of the land. Because it shouldn't be. We have we have freedom of we have we have you know we have freedom of religion. Jews don't have a sacramental. But but a lot of but there's a whole tradition. But there's a whole secular component here, which is what a lot of the cases that were brought are often based on, and that's the matter of like spousal benefits, tax breaks, the kinds of things that actually from an from a sort of social infrastructure standpoint were obviously only uh, given and allowed to uh, men and women who were married, despite the fact that there were partnerships of people of the same sex that were far longer and of greater duration than than some married couples. So there was a kind of secular yeah. and and financial economic impact that was being felt that that I think justified uh, and actually contributed greatly to a lot of the um, change in public opinion. You would hear these stories about spouses who'd been together, you know, people who were not legally married, but had been together for 30 years. And then they couldn't even visit their dying, you know, wife or husband in the hospital or, you know, not wife, but common law partner in the hospital because they weren't considered immediate family. I mean, those are heartbreaking stories. And I think that really did move a lot of move the needle for a lot of people who otherwise didn't feel like this, you know, they were going to be revolutionaries on one side or the other. Anyway, all I'm saying is, you know, no, you're right. You know, supermajority of the Senate passed this. Eleven Republicans voted for it. That is a that is a, a sign of a of a of a political consensus. It's not a controversial decision in the end, in that sense. I'm whereas say Roe, that was the whole point about the conservative jurisprudence around Roe, conservative ideas about Roe, which is had Roe been passed, it had been law. You know, had I mean, in other words, had the right to abortion been enshrined in law through the proper process of representational government, um, we wouldn't have spent 50 years in hell over abortion because what the Supreme Court did was illegitimate, declaring, simply, you know, waving its hand and saying this was this was a right. Um, similarly, I don't know what opponents of gay marriage are going to do except say america is garbage which is probably what they're going to do that's what i'm saying and that's the part like you don't want a large population even if it's a minority population thinking that america is a grotesque immoral you place. don't but some arguments need to be had to be settled that is the covenant of dobbs dobbs remanded the issue of abortion to the states the, the, that means that there's going to be fights at the state level, and that also means conservatives who find abortion to be a moral atrocity are going to be confronted with a lot more moral atrocities than they previously had to had to contend with. And they'll get their say, and then they'll have to battle it out over the generations. That was the critique of Dobbs, is that it froze this fight in amber for 50 years, and now it can be re-engaged. Row, but, right, the, yeah. but the fight has now been engaged, the same as the story about marriage. The story about marriage is an evolution of a social debate and a social argument and a legislative debate and a legal debate that is definitively, at this point, settled in jurisprudence and legislation, which is entirely how it's supposed to be. Yes, there's a losing side in that fight, and they're going to have hurt feelings. But that's how it always has been. It's not just hurt feelings. That's what I'm saying. Like you don't, there, there is a tradition of magnanimity and victory, even in, particularly in democracies, which is part of why I can't make sense out of what I'm reading because I don't really understand the nuances here. But the Republicans who voted for it added amendments that supposedly protect religious liberty traditions in relation to this people who oppose the legislation say they're nonsense they have no force of law i don't know what to make of it i don't i i you know they'll be tested they'll be tested in court they'll theoretically be tested right but but they're there they were put in the bill and they were voted on in that sense you could say that there's a landmark thing where you know uh 
50 Democrats in the Senate voted to protect religious liberty. I mean, you could flip this around and say that's a that's a crossing of the Rubicon because concerns about religious liberty have largely been the bailiwick of of the Republican Party and the conservative movement and and Democrats have barreled through them and now they've actually they're actually on the record voting to support religious liber- religious liberty provision if in fact there are any teeth to it. All right, let's take a break and hear from our next sponsor. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights, Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Okay, where do we go from here? Uh, We were going to talk about the various authoritarian regimes uh, getting some pushback from their people. Yeah, so Abe Abe yesterday said, made the point that, um, you know, all we ever hear about is how America's, you know, democracies are in crisis, but... um, really does appear like the world's three leading autocracies or whatever you want to call them, sort of semi-totalitarian states, that's Russia, China, and Iran, are um they're in a lot of they're in a lot of trouble. And uh and we 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 have um glossed over this lightly, like because we're so obsessed and consumed with our own difficulties and troubles. Um and maybe we should like take a little bit of a, la- a lap here. <laughs> You know, yay, yeah, yay, Western Civ. Abe, you have any uh, further? I mean, you know, only that. <clears throat> in thinking about this, I, I think that pandemic, and even before the pandemic, there is populism that that seems to be traveling around the globe, um, has caused upheaval, really for everyone. You know, like for for for. Um, democracies and autocracies and, and every admixture uh, in between um we see the the what it's done to democracies we see what it's it continues to do um um deforms and misshapes our 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 like political public political life um it would be good if it 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 distorted and and misshaped the the political life of autocracies as well um so kind of what's happening here i mean the thing the thing that is um frightening to me is i mean there's no question that if the protests over covid in china go on the way that they're going on that the crackdown is going to be vicious. I mean, it's not just that Tiananmen Square happened, you know, 33 years ago. We saw protests in Hong Kong that were put down very harshly uh, after the, you know, when Hong Kong, when the people of Hong Kong said, we would really like you to live up to your, you know, live up to what you promised the British when we, uh, you know, when we, uh, when Hong Kong was retrocessed back to China and uh, the Chinese government said, the hell with you, you know? Yeah, the, the CP, Americans probably don't understand or willfully ignore that repression has always been part of the CCP's, you know, in, in its toolbox. But the surveillance state, just this, this, the technical precision with which the Chinese Communist Party can survey its citizens is a is you can't call it dystopian. It's here. It's been running. It's highly functioning. It's terrifying um and we got glimpses of it during during covid actually with some of the some of the ways that they used you know passes on people's mobile devices to allow them out of their homes or to grocery stores and stuff that surveillance state much of it built with technology developed in the west and eagerly sold by tech companies to the ccp is is under underappreciated for its for its potential for evil uh by a lot of westerners and and i think what these protests show um it's extraordinary that even under those 
kinds of conditions and knowing that they are going to be identified individually by the state, these people are still going out there and fighting. They're 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 going to the streets and they are protesting. It's it's I mean, extraordinary. I, I think the the sort of the, the results are in on the debate about where 21st century communications technology was it going to help the the activists uh at the the dissidents in in autocracies or was it going to uh who's going to get the greater edge from it them or or the autocrats um it is the autocrats but it's not just the this is a more ambiguous story unless you think that the protests are you know, just doomed to failure. It'd be better that they weren't that they weren't started in the first place. Like because obviously, no. there's a lot of organizing going on in Iran using social media and 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 the internet and stuff like that. Well, you know, when you have fifty different places having demonstrations at the same, that's because news is traveling through unofficial channels and that they're they're incapable of keeping it quiet and how to do it what what lessons are to be learned from how the how the uh, besiege did this here as opposed besiege did this here as opposed to that there you know that's a that's a real thing again it may lead to a kind of nightmarish tragedy when when the iranians have really had enough and 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 pull out all the stops yeah i i don't i don't i don't mean to say that i think yeah be, because the autocrats have um the edge that this this uh, the edge in technology that that means it's game over for every yeah. uh, revolutionary movement i don't i don't think that at all yeah um i just think i mean it's like it's it like you know we keep hearing like the iranians are going to shut down the internet or the chinese are going to shut down the internet well in the it's not so set like think about your own home like let's say you have a home as i do and you kids who have devices and you're like they're on their devices too much you know i'm gonna buy this thing that shuts down the internet in my house circle or something like that I'm shut it down and then they'll have to read books or whatever but of course if you shut down the internet in your house your internet is shut down you work at home and you need to work on the internet you so you know it's it becomes an interesting these kind of like quick and dirty tools like you can shut down the internet they can't because they need it to communicate with each other everything is now interwoven so the world is a much more complicated place in that sense autocratically and one of the things that the autocrats used to be able to do was limit the information that their own forces could get right their own military their army their all that because that really is a contained environment and so they could say look you're actually fighting you know americans these are all america you know this is the, they've been hypnotized by the by the israelis whatever and you know it was much i think easier for the people the conscripts of the military to believe the nonsense and pro propaganda that they're being peddled but that but but Savistat, like, you know, uh, Savistat always got in, right? That's the whole story of the captive mind was how if you are living under a kind of regime that tries to, to tries to feed you a story, you know, in your own in your own mind, your own experience to be untrue. How do you how do you live in the day to day with that uh, contradiction? And eventually something breaks. What's fascinating about what's going on right now is how it's broken for different reasons in different places in, in a similar span of time. Because what's going on in China is very different from what's happening in Iran in terms of the spark that lit the flame. Yeah. Um, but it but it there is, I, I agree with Abe, there is some sort of weird unrest. It almost does feel viral in the way that it has kind of gone around and yeah. and each expression of it in each culture is different, but there is that and it's terrifying in some places, but it's also very heartening again in these places where people have been just absolutely repressed brutally yeah. for decades see them i just was you know uh one way to 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 work toward leveling the, the playing field when it comes to technology in these in these cases um is for the u.s to get involved on the side of of protesters um uh which we do in in overt and covert ways and uh which which, which we have always done with with various yeah. forms of tech of communication communications technology so um you know it's not just this sort of techno in 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 to the extent that it works for to the extent that that high tech works for protesters and dissidents it's not just because of some sort of techno utopian yeah. uh ideal come to life it is uh good states 
good countries who care about these things uh, actually uh, c- coming to their aid and and marshaling their forces in their defense. That's a very important point because it also connects to what's gone on in Ukraine for the last nine months or 10 months, however long it's been. Because, of course, the Ukrainian, astonishing Ukrainian success in fighting the Russian military is in part ballasted by the fact that we have provided them with high-tech, uh, unbelievably precision high-tech weaponry that would have been entirely out of their reach and that the Russians themselves have no clue, have, have no defense against. And so our next generation, our next level abilities uh, in, you know, in the in the adaptation of, of, of tech uh, with, you know, hardware um really have you know made an enormous difference and there's some version of that without hardware um that we, again we don't even understand you know we, we we don't we don't know we don't know what it is and we don't understand what it is and we shouldn't know because if we knew then they would know and they would know how to counteract it uh let me just uh remind you that as the holidays are coming up we're almost in december it's almost December, people, and that means you got 24, 25 days. We got we got Hanukkah on the 18th. We got Christmas on the 25th. Bowl and Branch is going to sell you those finest 100% organic cotton thread sheets that make a difference you can truly feel night after night uh, for your holiday giving needs in a signature gift box that creates an unboxing experience you're Loved ones will never forget, wrapped and ready. Your gifts will look as special as they feel. We're talking about buttery, soft, organic cotton sheets free from toxins, pesticides, and harsh chemicals made by artisans. Designs and colors for every bedroom style and mattress size. Unmatched softness gets softer with every single wash and a three-night 30-night, excuse me, 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all orders. Get a better night's sleep to everyone on your list with Bowen Brand Sheets, 25% off-site wide until December 4th, plus free shipping when you use promo code COMMENTARY at bowenbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code COMMENTARY. Like I said, the offer ends on December 4th. Fourth. Uh anybody got anything else? What do we got? We got nothing. We got nothing we can do in the space nothing. of five minutes. Really? I mean, okay. Uh okay. Well, we got the oath keepers. We got the oath keepers convicted of we got uh, two leading oath keepers convicted, or the oath keepers leader convicted of sedition. Uh, a charge that, um, according to uh, Andy, our friend Andy, my our good friend Andy McCarthy, uh, who actually conducted a seditious conspiracy trial against the blind sheik uh, in New York, Abdul Rahman, uh, in 1995, and successfully had him convicted on seditious conspiracy. This is something that is used. You can count on one hand or two hands in American history the number of times that seditious conspiracy charges have been successfully prosecuted or even tried uh, in the American legal system since since pretty much the founding of the country. Uh, so this is kind of a landmark um, moment. Uh, and it's interesting because the argument being made that was made before the jury in this D.C. courthouse was that uh, uh, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, had this plan in hand, ready to go, and was just sort of like what he wanted to do was try to overthrow the government, and this was the uh, opportunity that he could use to um, generate his plan and put it in place. Um, this is not the same argument that the Justice Department is would make if they were to indict Donald Trump on January 6th matters. Because their their argument would the Justice Department made this case against Stuart Rhodes, but they basically said he was the motive actor, not Trump, because he is the seditious conspirator. But the argument, if the Justice Department 
uh, indicts Trump relating to January 6th will be that he was the motive actor on January 6th. He knowingly, knowing that he had lost the election, drew a crowd to Washington to get them to do what they could to intimidate Mike Pence and others into somehow slowing or halting the count so that something could happen that would make him install him as president. So you actually have this weird thing where you have two different, almost contradictory arguments that might might be made. Now, the Justice Department has not indicted Trump on matters relating to January 6th. I kind of doubt that they will, even though that's, of course, what the slavering hysterics, uh, you know, and the resistance really want. I mean, I think, you know, what they want to do or what would be the cleanest thing to do would be to indict him on on the Mar-a-Lago mishandling of classified information. But we'll see. Anybody have any thoughts? Don't I I don't want to just be the dominating voice here. Somebody say something. Really? <laughs> is this like where I I'm gonna have to call on you? This is like, you know, a classroom where no one has the answer. The answer to what? All right. I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're, never, you're, never, you're not at a loss for words, usually. There's an exception. My flu the medicine is wearing off. That's my excuse. Okay. I'm going to work that angle. <laughs> okay. All right. We will uh, We will be back tomorrow uh, for Abe Noen and, and, and Christine. Uh, go get some more flu medicine. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.